My name is Justin. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City. It's so good to be with you. It's such an exciting day. I'm going to be yelling uh, into the mic because I want everybody to be able to hear as much as possible. Uh, but first, uh, it has been exciting to have been able to celebrate baby dedications, uh, including uh, my own daughters. So thank you to Nikki for leading us so well. Uh, in caring for families and our younger saints and to so many of you uh, in our community for not just saying the words of support but for showing up for being present uh, in action as well second it's it's an exciting day to have been able to be led in our liturgy by members of our LGBTQ affinity group and so thank you to Evan and Jake to Lauren and Sam and Valeria who led us this week and to Emily who led us last week who shared last week and to all of the folks you are holding space for and let me offer a plug here if you are a queer and looking for a community of fellow queer Christians to walk the journey with you can email lgbtq at christcitydc.org that will go straight to the leaders of our group uh, they would love to hear from you the uh, third reason I'm excited to be here is that I am preaching in a setting that is not just looking at a camera in our church office with our staff off to the side for the first time in 16 months. The last time I did something like this was February 23rd, 2020, my son Daniel's first birthday. Uh, now, I'm so grateful that, that we learned how to be online, especially for the folks that we've been able to connect with this last year and for those who've been able to participate in worship with us more easily, but I am thrilled to be speaking to actual people, actual faces, actual potential hecklers, uh, or let me, let me frame it positively, an actual potential amen corner. Um, but some things don't change. I'm sweating out here instead of sweating in the office, and the front row is still empty. So, fourth and finally, the reason, one of the reasons I'm excited to be here with you is um, my paternity leave begins this Thursday, July 1st. I'm looking forward to being the primary caregiver for Catherine these next couple months. And while I will miss the work of pastoring, which I love and I am so grateful to do, I'm also glad to have this opportunity today to preach one more time before I go on break. We've spent the last two months diving into Paul's letter to the Galatians, one of the earliest documents in the New Testament that was written to a group of churches in what is modern-day Turkey. My son Daniel can, can yell at me on camera now. We have drawn out the golden thread of the letter and we have named the series after it. Be free. Be free. We set as our anchor verse that emphatic statement of the Apostle Paul in chapter 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And we've explored, we've unpacked, we've discussed what it means to be truly free. The meaning of freedom, the, the barriers to freedom, the responsibility of freedom. Now, whatever freedom may mean for you right now, we, we all want to be free, right? We, we just, just looking back at my last week, I, I would love to be free from paying bills. Uh, I would love to not lose my notes. Oh. This is, this is one of those things I didn't have to deal with in the office. I would love to be free from junk mail. Anybody else? Okay, couple. I would love to be free from being out of shape and the aches of aging. I would love to be free from the weight of people's expectations. From being judged by the color of my skin, especially by those who think being colorblind is a good thing. From my own insecurities, from, from the creeping fear that I am not good enough as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a brother, as a pastor, as a Christian, 
What is it that you long to be free from? What is it that you long to be free from? What is it that you would love to be free from? Today we arrive at the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians and the end of our series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. And I want to offer three reminders as a parting word. I'm just going to jump straight in because we're, 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 uh, we're already strapped for time. But the first reminder is this. True freedom is found in Jesus. True freedom is found in Jesus. In these last few verses of Galatians, Paul summarizes his case against those who were trying to lead these early Christians, these, these friends of his, astray. Now, if you haven't been with us or if you need a refresher, the situation Paul was dealing with was, was that uh, on the one side, there was a tug of war between, on the one side, a group of Jewish Christians who were saying that non-Jewish Christians had to be circumcised in order to be saved, in order to be justified or considered right with God. That's what it said in the Law of Moses. And on the other side, you had Paul, who was saying, no, no, all that is required to be set right with God is to trust in Jesus, in who he said he was and in what he accomplished by his death and resurrection. That's it. And there's no other hoops to jump through, no other barriers to climb, no other gates to be kept. As the Apostle Peter would put it in the book of Acts, we are all saved in the same way, by the grace of the Lord Jesus. And in these verses here, Paul like a lawyer in court offering his closing statement, he lays out again why the Galatian Christians shouldn't trust those who want them to be circumcised, and he reaffirms why he can be trusted, why his case should prevail. In Galatians 6, 11 to 14, he writes this. He says, These people who are attempting to force the ways of circumcision on you have only one motive. They want an easy way to look good before others, lacking the courage to live by a faith that shares Christ's suffering and death. All their talk about law is gas. They themselves don't keep the law, and they are highly selective in the laws they do observe. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast of their success in recruiting you to their side. That is contemptible. Paul here is calling out his opponent's hypocrisy and disingenuity. They're just putting on a show. They're just doing enough to let themselves off the hook without actually caring for those they are trying to convince or even acting with basic integrity. Paul goes on in verse 14, As for me, God forbid that I should boast about anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through him, and I have been crucified to the world. Paul says he will boast about nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. And he's referring specifically to how Jesus died, but he's using it as a shorthand to mean everything Jesus stood for and represented in his life and death and resurrection. Now, for Greeks and Romans in the first century, the Jewish practice of circumcision, which is this contested tradition in Paul's letter, that was considered a mutilation of the flesh. But... It was universally agreed and universally accepted that the Roman practice of crucifixion was the most horrendous death imaginable in, the, in their day. First century Roman historian Seneca the Younger wrote, it would be better to commit suicide than to endure such a tortured death. And that's what Paul chooses to boast in, cross. Not his achievements in adhering to the law, not his accomplishments in demonstrating his zeal for God, but the cross an abhorrent and humiliating execution. 
true freedom is found in Jesus because Jesus, in giving his life for us and being willing to submit himself to the horror of the cross, showed us the love of God, showed us the extent to which God would go to save us from our sin, ourselves, and one another. Even before we recognize our need for God, even before we admit the ways we hurt and harm one another, even before we realize that most of our life is spent seeking affirmation and acknowledgement and approval from everyone else. At the heart of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is the message that you are loved. You are loved, you are loved by God. And that love frees us in such a way that Paul writes, the world has been crucified to me through him and I have been crucified to the world. Or as another translation puts it, and I love this, I have been set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. It has been such a privilege and such an inspiration to see how our queer siblings in Christ have showed us the journey to freedom as they have learned to stand on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which saves us all. And so thank you for setting an example for us. The good news of Jesus is that there is a new way. There's a new life. There's freedom at the deepest level, and it is available. To the Galatians, Paul writes, being circumcised or not being circumcised, the issue of their day, it doesn't mean anything. It is not what you or I do. Submit to circumcision, reject circumcision. What matters is what God is doing. What matters is what God is doing. What matters is a new creation. What matters is the new reality in which we learn the good news of our belovedness communicated through the medium of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and how we can learn to live into that belovedness. Sometimes we describe this as the kingdom of God. It's a new creation. It's freedom. And it will take us the rest of our lives to discover the fullness of that freedom and that love. Because the true freedom that is found in Jesus, that is found in Jesus Christ, the true freedom that comes in knowing we are loved and welcomed by God as we are right now, is so deeply personal. It is so incisive and life-giving for each and every one of us. And it is so ubiquitously universal. It is so pervasive and permeating. It is so communal and cosmic. In the words of James Cone, the cross is the most empowering symbol of God's loving solidarity with the least of these. The unwanted in society who suffer daily from great injustice. Christians must face the cross as the terrible tragedy it was and discover in it, through faith and repentance, the liberating joy of eternal salvation. But, he goes on, we cannot find liberating joy in the cross by just spiritualizing it, by taking away its message of justice in the midst of powerless suffering and death. The cross as a locus of divine revelation is not good news for the powerful or for those who are comfortable with the way things are or for anyone whose understanding of religion is aligned with power. Let me put it this way, good news for everyone may not always feel like good news to everyone. Just as equality and equity may not feel like good news to those who have benefited from unjust systems and structures or normative cultural assumptions. And so here is the second reminder today. True freedom is liberty and liberation. True freedom is liberty and liberation. True freedom is not just about our own liberty. It is about our collective liberation. It is not just a state of being free. It is the act of becoming free and of freeing others. Rabbi Abraham Heschel said, in a free society, few are guilty, 
but all are responsible. Few are guilty, but all are responsible. To put it another way, what are we free for? What are we free for? What are you choosing with your freedom? Because freedom is not just from encumbrances. It is inevitably for something. Earlier in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he reminded them that freedom, at least the Christian understanding of freedom, is so that we can serve each other in love, he said. All the law of Moses has been fulfilled in a single statement, love your neighbor as yourself. That's an act of true freedom. True freedom is binding ourselves to one another. Your well-being with my well-being. Your prosperity with my prosperity. Your tears and laughter with my tears and laughter. And we see this throughout the New Testament and, and throughout Christian history, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, as Paul would write in Romans. Or to quote Dr. Martin Luther King, recognizing our interconnectedness in an inescapable network of mutuality, single garment of destiny. True freedom is a choosing of commitment. It's a choosing of those to whom we will be joined. It is to choose, as Christ did, to extend our arms wide to the world God created and to extend them as wide as Christ did to all. Years ago, when I proposed to my now wife, Carolyn, at the Georgetown waterfront on a cool November night a few days after my birthday, I used a quote from author Madeline Langle, which included this line. If we commit ourselves to one person for life, this is not, as many people think, a rejection of freedom. Rather, it demands the courage to move into all the risks of freedom and the risk of love which is permanent into lo that love which is not possession but participation. Now, I confess I do not always have the courage to move into all the risks of freedom both in my marriage and beyond. I, I confess I do not always embody a love that is participation and not possession. And one manifestation of that comes in my need to be right, in my desire to have things the way I want them to be. Carolyn can tell you all about this. Now, in and of itself, that need, that desire, they're not wrong. It's very understandable, in fact. It's our natural inclination to shape things the way we think they ought to be shaped. After all, we have our reasons for wanting things to be the way we want them to be. But as any therapist or pastor or wise friend will tell you, being right is not the most important thing in a relationship. And if you are always right, and if you are always proving you are right, your partner may well be miserable. I say this from my experience as a partner who has caused harm because of that need to be right. One of the practices that has helped me grow in this regard, both in my marriage and in ministry, is what Dallas Willard calls the discipline of not having the last word. The discipline of not having the last word. Which itself is made all the more possible if we are secure in God's love for us. But what Madeline Lengo wrote about love and a deeper freedom, it doesn't just apply to romantic relationships. It applies to friendships and to communities as well. Like the words Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 about love being patient and kind and persevering and all that, words that are so often quoted at weddings but were actually written to a church community about how to coexist and how to commune and how to be together with each other and together in the world, the body of Christ, the tangible and practical expressions of the love of Jesus. 
So let me, re let me rework Madeline Lengel's quote a little bit. If we commit ourselves to a community, if we commit ourselves to other people, this is not, as many people think, a rejection of freedom. Rather, it demands the courage to move into all the risks of freedom and the risk of love which is permanent, into that love which is not possession but participation. The call of Jesus to those who would follow is, as we've heard in recent weeks, to live in God's Spirit. It's to be moved and formed by that Spirit so that we live and love and look like Jesus. And by implication, more like the God who is love, whose love finds tangible expression in preaching good news, in embodying righteousness and justice, in seeking liberation for all, but especially for those who are and have historically been excluded and marginalized. To love our neighbors as ourselves. It is to be both recipients and conduits. It is to be both reservoirs and waterways of the love of God. It's why we advocate for affordable housing for our neighbors with dozens of other faith communities in D.C. through our partnership with the Washington Interfaith Network. It's why we partner with Minor Elementary School and their administration and their parent-teacher organization to support the teachers and the kids and the staff and to help provide for the basic needs of our neighbors in need through Minor's Community Table events. But it is also what we seek to communicate and transmit through every single person who calls himself a part of Christ City Church. All of us are image bearers of God. All of us are invited to join in the mission of God. All of us are commissioned to carry that divine imprint of love and that life-giving message of God's love which bridges human-made divisions and creates instead a beloved community into all the places we go and all the places we stay. To quote Dr. King again, God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race and in the creation of a society where all men and women can live together as brothers and sisters, where everyone will respect the dignity and the worth of human personality. That is the longing of the Creator and the grain of the world God created, but let me be clear, it is not the way the current is flowing. It is not the path of least resistance. We will not drift into liberation. We will not drift into true freedom, and we may not make it through unscathed. In Galatians 6.17, Paul wrote, From now on, no one should bother me because I bear the marks of Jesus on my body. Now, he said that to demonstrate his bona fides to the, uh, the Galatians, his, his commitment to Christ. And what he was likely referring to was the fact that for the sake of the gospel and the work of spreading the good news of the love and the new creation and the kingdom of Jesus, he had been beaten and he had been stoned and he had been imprisoned. He had experienced all manner of suffering. And here we remember, too, that Jesus himself was opposed and then executed by religious and political authorities because the new creation he was inaugurating by his words and his deeds were, as he said himself, about good news to the poor and liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, about turning injustice on its head and subverting an oppressive status quo. It was not just about good news when we die, as some iterations of American Christianity would have you believe, but about good news before we die as well. Good news for right now, even if it is not all good news right now. It was about making a way to God and making a world in which God's image in every human being was honored, and that work will likely not come easy or without cost. 
And so in the last sentence of this letter, Paul concludes what Brennan Manning, author Brennan Manning, describes as his flaming manifesto on Christian freedom, on the liberation and the liberty we have in Christ. He concludes not with a William Wallace-like yell at the end of Braveheart, or not with the fiery words with which he has burned his opponents and sought to warn with all care and urgency his friends who are about to fall off the edge. He ends with this. He says, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, family. Amen. Paul used some version of this benediction in every single letter he wrote. And over the course of this letter, Paul has rebuked and persuaded. Paul has argued and appealed. He has used every tool at his disposal to convince the Christians in Galatia of the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in the words of Catholic social activist Dorothy Day, it is all grace. It is all grace. Indeed, we should note that even amidst all of the cajoling and the contention of this letter, Paul both begins and ends the letter to the Galatians with grace. And that is the third and final reminder for today. True freedom is all about grace. It's all about grace. As we've already heard, it is the grace of God that frees us. It is the grace of God that reshapes us individually, communally, systemically. When it comes to God, there is always grace and there is grace for all. Grace that saves for sure, but also grace for the journey. Grace for mistakes, grace for imperfections, grace for vulnerability, grace for not meeting expectations, grace as we do unto others as we would have them do to us, grace even as we name injustice and wrongdoing and work to end them, grace as we face our own shadows and stumble along our own paths of sobriety, grace for wounds picked up along the way. I think, though we may at times find it hard to accept it, we, we prefer to receive grace. It's a little bit harder to show grace sometimes. And part of that is because we're consumers in a consumeristic society. We're, we're, we're trained to spot what we don't like. If we order one thing and we get another, we receive a flawed product, what do we do? We send it back, right? We get, a, we get the right thing in good condition, as we should, because we paid for it. But it's too easy for us to apply that same mindset, that same, I want things a particular way, to other people, to our relationships, to our community. The church, when we do things in the name of Jesus and seemingly for the cause of Jesus, but we do them in a manner that Jesus would not if he were in our place, we are missing the mark. So we all need grace and we always need grace. But a couple of interesting things here. First, when Paul prays, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Your is plural, but spirit is singular. Your is plural, but spirit is singular. As in, it is not a blessing over individual Christians. It is a blessing over the Galatian church's one united spirit. And that is a different and a more challenging proposition for many of us in the West. And second, in the Greek, the last word, notwithstanding Paul's amen, the last word of the letter is adelphoi. Adelphoi literally is translated as brothers, but essentially it means brothers and sisters, or family. The last word of Paul's letter to the Galatians, which began with disbelief and despair, with anger and argument, the last word of that letter is family. 
That is who we are. We are bound together in Christ. And so what might it mean for us, Christ City, to have a spirit? What would it mean for our collective spirit to experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? What might it mean if we looked at one another as family? How might we as a community that is seeking to embody and point to the beauty and the diversity of the kingdom of God, the new creation, navigating what it means not just to, not just to coexist across lines of race and gender and sexuality and socioeconomic status, but to be truly united in Christ, to be recipients and conduits of grace to one another and to the world together, what might it mean? Let me offer just one idea today. Uh, there's a concept you may have heard of called the compliment sandwich. Anybody? A few folks. It's where when you're giving bad news or a hard word, you start with a compliment and end with a compliment to try and help it land a bit better. Now I realize that that is actually the wrong concept because the compliment is the bread. But you get the idea. And I think it's actually limited in its efficacy because we all know that one critical message sticks far longer and burrows far deeper than a hundred affirming ones. But what I want to encourage us to do to start doing this week as a grace-giving exercise is to practice naming the good. Practice naming the good. I know for me, when I, when I like or approve of something, I don't, I don't have cause to make a fuss about it in, any, in the way that I would if I didn't like something or approve of something. And so practice naming the good with your friends, with your loved ones, at your work. When someone does something laudable, don't just skip past it. Tell them you appreciate it. When someone shares something with you, be intentional at highlighting what you like before you point out what's wrong. Or maybe just hold your critique, just, just once. Practice the discipline of not having the last word. It takes a lot of effort to train ourselves to be gracious. So let's practice together. The monk Thomas Merton is attributed with this saying, a saint is not someone who is good, a saint is someone who experiences the goodness of God. A saint is not someone who is good, but someone who experiences the goodness of God. And so let us experience the goodness and grace of God, and let us be those through whom others experience the goodness and grace of God. So we might all know and experience the true freedom that is found in Jesus. Would you pray with me? As we sit here, as we sit scattered and gathered all across D.C. And, and, and the country and the world, I want us to become attuned to our breathing. As we breathe in and as we breathe out. And as we breathe in life-giving breath, may we breathe in grace and may we breathe in freedom. Remember to slow down and notice the goodness of God. In the big things like answered prayers or unexpected good news or in the small things like a, a delicious meal or a hilarious text chain with friends, breathe it in. And the things you often take for granted, like the breath in your lungs or the folks that keep you grounded, your people, breathe it in. Inhale the grace of God. Receive the affirmation and acknowledgement of the Creator. Discover, uncover, recover the riches of knowing you 
and everyone you know are so deeply loved by God as demonstrated in Jesus. And then as we exhale, I know you haven't been holding your breath this whole time, but as we exhale, let us also breathe out grace and breathe out freedom. May we practice the discipline of not having the last word. May we work for the liberation of others, for the creation that groans as it awaits the unveiling of the children of God, we who are family, we who seek to carry on the family business of redemption and life bringing. May we advocate for just laws. May we protest against unjust policies. May we ad agitate for basic needs for all. May we love our neighbors as ourselves. May we let love be our motivation and let Jesus be our model. For freedom, Christ has set us free. May the grace of that Lord Jesus Christ be with our spirit family. Amen.